You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Protean Machining. And this week, I'm happy to bring back, you know, we still owe them a six-hour special, Jeff Tiedekin. Welcome, Jeff. <laughs> We're getting there. We're counting down the hours. <laughs> yeah. For anybody who hasn't heard his past episodes, he was on episode 48 and then 110. And we are just, you know, I'm having him back on because he's had so much change even since the last time he was on. So give us the update, you know, job, new machines, all the stuff. What's going on in your life? Yeah, uh, lots of lots of stuff happening as usual. Yeah, so I was working at the uh, doing a bunch of nuclear stuff for a long time, quite a few years, all through kind of the pandemic stuff. And then, yeah, took took a break like then like that break as normal, short, shorter than I wanted it to be. <laughs> I had a, I had great plans of going and exploring and riding mountain bike and canoeing, but that went short lived. <laughs> I got an opportunity actually. It was kind of come aerospace company reached out and they were looking at potentially like buying my small shop because assets were super hard to get. And it was pretty random because I was like, <laughs> I don't really have anything compared. But but yeah, I think like it was a combination of like my tools that were hard to get and me helping the project and it worked out pretty good. I ended up deciding not to sell, which ended up being probably the right call. And then, yeah, ended up going to work for this small satellite company uh, to help them build some cool product. And you also were tasked with building up this shop, right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of awesome because like one of the best things you know that I have like right now in the Bay Area is this amazing connection network working with Selway Machine, knowing the Matsura family, just having like this awesome database of who's where and what and when, which actually worked out really well to a, like our advantage. Originally, when they wanted the aerospace company wanted to purchase purchase our equipment, we were like a little bit hesitant because, you know, we, we have like the one Matsura and we had some hauses and stuff like that but you know it's like it's pretty limited in size there we pretty much specialize in like the small stuff so i was like ah you're gonna buy all this equipment we're still gonna have to buy stuff so i pulled some strings worked with andrew selway and preston hill and a few others who got it in touch with the matsura family we actually found out that they were shipping a bunch of equipment to imts which actually worked out super well basically like did a little negotiation to acquire some of the booth <laughs> machines that they just landed in LA and were on their way to get shipped to Chicago. And <laughs> we ended up just like getting them shipped from LA straight up to San Francisco. And I started building out the shop and uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's like kind of weird. It's like when I go to work, it's like a Wayne's world when they, when they built that uh, set of Wayne's basement in that studio, <laughs> it's like the same <laughs> feeling because it kind of feels the same because like the building we moved into as a kitchen, like very similar to where like my kitchen is next to the Matsura. So it's kind of like oddly like, but it doesn't, it feels and it looks like my house, but it doesn't really feel exactly like my house. <laughs> right. It's like an artistic <laughs> interpretation of your house. Like if you gave uh, chat GPT, like, hey, this is what my house looks like. Rebuild my house. <laughs> exactly. It's a little out of scale. <laughs> no, it's well, it's it's super cool. And yeah, it's a, it's it's pretty rad. Uh, so the company is called Astronus Space. You can check them out, astronus.com. The main goal with them is building this small, high-performance 
miniature geostationary satellite. And one of the main, you know, difficulties is just building stuff. So the goal there was just to kind of help bring stuff in house and uh, use my aerospace background to kind of help build the build the project. It's super cool too because it's actually like it's kind of wild. The, machine, the building that they had me move into was a machine shop in the late eighteen hundreds, and was a machine shop like basically all through up until about the early nineteen nineties, and its specialty was basically building battleships, then does submarines and back and forth. And they also built some of the BART tube, which is like the subway, like transit system. They built a lot of the tunnel in this building. So it's pretty wild to like get to be recreating a, like a modern machine shop in this old building. And it was actually pretty wild. I, I gave a tour the other day to an older gentleman. So we've been getting a lot of press lately and an older gentleman seen a seen our stuff in the newspaper. And so he reached out to the company. <laughs> he wrote a, wrote a message to the company and then like they linked him up with me and he had actually worked in that building back in the sixties. And he's like, probably in his like, I don't know, he's got had to be probably in his like eighties. And it was so interesting to give him a tour of the building. Now that it's like full of all this like super awesome like satellite production facility aerospace clean rooms aerospace welding clean rooms like oh man you know and and it was like kind of weird because like he knew the building so well because he had spent like 30 plus years in this building but like it was like kind of like this weird emotional like like tour for him because it was also like i think i think it was weird because i think he's seen a lot of himself in me and it was it was it was really fun. It was super cool. It was pretty special. So pretty cool to kind of keep the dream alive in this building. Yeah, that's killer. I mean, imagine it's like when you go back to your childhood home and you know you see other people living in it and it's different and everything. You know, it's the same bones. It's it's I'm sure it's very emotional. Yeah, yeah it was super cool. And you know, and I give a lot of tours, but that one's like it's just extra special too because it's there's like huge appreciation for that that level of work like. I mean, we kind of take it for granted nowadays. Like, you know, when something something isn't going right, we just like throw in a new block of metal and we right. start it over, you know, <laughs> like that level, that like era of machinists, you know, you were already like days and weeks into machining components. And like, if things weren't going right, it was you turning hand cranks, going back like another week and making it. So a lot of appreciation to like the people that built that stuff back then and doing it by hand, like. It's it's a little bit humbling sometimes when you have to jump back on the bridge port and like you're like this is where I started but man it's like it's a lot of work like we take yeah. it for granted nowadays. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember who it was in my early career that said manual machinists have the stress the entire time whereas all of the the CNC machinist stress is front loaded and it's like once <laughs> you know you get that first part off you're like all right I'm good you know. Whereas the manual machine is, it's like, I've got it. I've got six ops left and every <laughs> single part has to be, you know, babysat and I, I need to make sure that everything's going to be okay. And classic engineer, he's like, you know, well, like you get it off the bridge port and he's like, you know what? We should just make one more. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, actually I needed this hole a little bit further over. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Can you try it again? <laughs> Start completely over. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you mentioned some of this machinery. Let's get into what you bought and why for the shop. Yeah, totally. So, you know, one of the interesting things about building, you know, machine shops, I've built a bunch of different shops now for different companies, 
kind of help companies go from zero to like wherever they are now. And it's interesting, like I've kind of, I've, I've kind of created my own little version of it and I do it in these phases. And a lot of it is not only for financial side of it. So it's not a huge overwhelming, you know, burden on the company, but it also like allows for the, you know, the company to grow in a sustainable way. And I learned early on, like if you go too fast, too quick, like that, you know, you start to be the eyes on the company, like the company starts to see this heavy burden of expenses and they see like they see you burning all this money. And then if the machine sits for like two days, everyone's like, what? Why do we even buy that? You know, so like the approach on this was a little bit different than like past projects. So there's a build in phases. So we're going aggressive on each phase. Right. So our first phase was basically just to buy three, three pieces of equipment to kind of get the ball rolling max those out and then we're getting ready here to buy our next phases and so this first phase was basically just like you know think about the satellite as a whole and think about like if we were to have a vendor drop the ball on us we could provide in-house like kind of security to provide every part of this satellite so from the biggest part to the smallest part the most complex part to the simplest so we picked a bunch of different machines so vf6 that kind of covers our range for big componentry, like big plates, everything from tooling to flight parts. We went with a Matsura MX850. And that's like such a beast of a machine. It's such a rad machine. It's got like, basically you can do like a 37 inch like circle, like like drum on it. So it's it's big. It's not massive, but it's big enough for what we do. Then we got a 330 with like a PC10. This is our first core phase. We have some fab tools and bridge ports and like a hard inch clone and stuff like that for the manual equipment. But really the main focus is like build the team, maximize the capability, then add another person and another person and more machines. And so like the goal is always to have like a 2.5 machines per person kind of ratio as we grow. And that way there's like never any point at which like people at the company see the machine shop is like a heavy burden financially and like, you know, it's always being productive. Yeah, totally. So how much does that PC 10 run? Are you guys keeping that pretty well fed? I mean, I don't know how far along Astronus is in design. Like, are you guys, do you have dedicated models now that are, you know, fully vetted and you guys are producing them or is this still a lot of R and D where you're making, Oh, we got to change this. Oh, we got to change that. And, sure. and that's why you guys have the PC. Yeah. So like the interesting thing is like in that early phase, I really didn't know, like it's always hard. Cause you like, you want the Swiss army knife, right? Like, you know, you always want the bigger machine so you can make the smaller part, but you don't want too big a machine, you know? And so like, you know, then the, like, the interesting thing about Astronus, I'll give you a little bit of background. Company's been around for a few years. I've been at the company a little shy two years full time. And basically the goal with the whole entire operation is to basically build a geostationary satellite. So if you're not familiar with geostationary, kind of give you a quick comparison. There's geo and there's Leo. And there's other orbits, but these are the two that most people talk about. Leo is low Earth orbit, so that would be basically like space station. Also, Starlink's up there. A lot of little test projects and like most of things we think about space is in low Earth orbit. Basically, like across the horizon, you only have a few minutes 
of like, so if something goes by like the space station, basically it's like seven minutes or every, you know, 90 minutes you're going around the earth. Then you have geostationary, which is basically about tw- like it's 20 something thousand miles or 36,000 kilometers out from the earth. You actually get to this point where like your earth rotation becomes stationary at this this point, right? So if you go any farther out, you're out of it. If you go any farther in, you're moving faster. So there's this sweet spot in this geo belt, as it's referred to. It's pretty special, right? And it's basically like it's really important that you like respect these like spots as a satellite builder. Everyone's fighting for these different spots. You want to park your satellite directly over this over these spots. And so to give you a kind of a comparison, so Starlink works in a pretty unique way. It looks at a very vast range of horizon. So as the Starlink goes over, it has to go from like basically left to right or right to left either way. But it has to go like every few minutes. Whereas geostationary is like what we're commonly familiar with, like dish network, where the dish stares at a standardized point forever. Right. So so we're building a geostationary satellite. So what's really unique about that is we have to deal with these super, super extremes, like so extreme range of temperature, 300 degrees C from hot to cold. So we're negative 100 and something and we're positive of like 100 and something C. Holy cow. And so we go through eclipses, which is wild because basically we have to run solely off batteries. We're like in the coldest, like we're almost negative 200 during an eclipse it's about 45 minutes long so we have to not only supply internet through that eclipse but we have to be able to like run solely off battery keep the fuel from like freezing which is it's a lot of work and so we have that we have radiation we have all these other problems uh that like we have to overcome and so it's a pretty tough spot to be in not to mention just getting there is like a huge ordeal right and so uh astronus is like totally kicking ass is pretty amazing actually (laughs) like to see so we just had our first launch and i can actually say it as of yesterday afternoon like uh we had a successful launch and our payload started talking and we're providing like communication back and forth from the ground to the satellite and back and forth over alaska so we built this prototype satellite basically to provide alaska with internet service mostly like dedicated on islands and like different reservations and and spots basically that have had low amounts of satellite service. And one of the main reasons for that is like most of these geostationary satellites that have actually been put into orbit are usually planted over the lower 48. So the beamline is very, very direct over the lower 48. So what actually happens if you think about like a globe, your beam you're just getting the last bits of power kind of hitting the top of the globe and that happens to be alaska so they've always had satellite they've never like the satellite internet has been there but the problem with it is it's not a big enough population density area to basically need a dedicated satellite astronomers came up with this really unique way to basically miniaturize everything that these large satellite companies have been doing for a long time into a small like refrigerator size satellite it's also pretty unique as it's a lot of people that have worked at spacex and other space companies and basically found this like kind of area on falcon that is kind of a void that works really well for 
building this satellite. So basically our satellite is kind of like a barnacle underneath. Oh, no way. <laughs> and so we actually ride along with other geostationary satellites. Like we might go up with something like a Garmin satellite and we can launch off underneath it the point at which we want to drop off. So it's pretty unique. We can actually ride along and it helps companies that are bigger satellite companies subsidize their launch. And it also allows us to get where we need to go. And so by designing this tiny little satellite, it actually allows for us to do some pretty unique things. And a satellite, you know, that's about the size of a refrigerator is actually pretty close to the right size to provide Alaska with enough internet bandwidth so it's it's super cool to be part of it and it was really unique to like be at the company when we turned on the payload and like to see it communicating so our first test the other day was pretty rad we actually sent a video of the spacex launch up to the satellite and then sent it back down so it was like (laughs) kind of wild to think this thing like traveled that far up and back and like yeah it was and we had two laptops sitting on the table If you go on YouTube and search up Astronus, you can uh, watch the video that just got published yesterday. And that was kind of our like little bit of a press release on it. And so it was super cool. It's like, you know, it's been involved in a lot of space stuff, but this is a pretty unique project. It's kind of a one of a kind right now. So it was like pretty special to be there for like and help out from, you know, a good part of that first build all the way into like now we're into full production. So we're basically building them in blocks. So we just reserved a dedicated SpaceX launch for the end of this year. We have another one coming up in the summer this next year. So the goal is we're in full production and that kind of leads into like where we're going with the shop. Like originally the shop was kind of a prototype shop. Now it's turned into a full blown production shop. Like, and that PC 10 has been running pretty much 24 hours a day since we bought it. So yeah, we're kind of realized real quick that maybe the PC 10 actually is like a little bit undersized for what we need. We need to go to probably the MAM or the Trinity or <laughs> it's oh time boy. to spend some real money. <laughs> so it's That's cool. awesome. Yep. So at the beginning of that, when you were talking about building the shop, you had mentioned, you know, you've done this a few times. You, you kind of had this reputation. And one of our questions from Nicholas Graham was, as someone who has created a reputation as a one-man problem-solving machine, how did you get people early in your in your career to trust you? And did, uh. you, do, did you do anything <laughs> specific to demonstrate your skills in ways that people reacted? Yeah, there's, I mean, I think the initial way to start that is there's no one man. <laughs> it's definitely like, you know, the, the thing is like at the end of the day, like my true love is being a welder and like a machinist. And if I think like, Honestly, my problem solving is just working to working around a lot of a lot of bad engineers and a lot of good engineers and seeing <laughs> what works and what doesn't. And then like just having a really good memory, <laughs> my saving grace is, uh, is just remembering a lot of things and and cross pollinating. I mean, like it's pretty wild. Like, you know, I, I think back to, you know, like some of the things that I've worked on and some of the projects and some of the people I've been around. And it's like, that's the core there. And like, and not to mention, like, you know, there's like, it's a whole team. There's just no way. I mean, there's no one person on any of these things, like, you know, especially the satellite, like, or, you know, this nuclear reactor or, you know, all these things, like, you know, even like, you know, working on sending stuff to JPL, like half that stuff's going to go in the scrap bin. Like, you're just like, hey, if you, 
add this, you know, and it's, it's all that like value added. And so I don't know, I think maybe, maybe my Instagram makes it look like a one man show, but there's definitely like always a team behind me. (laughs) Totally. But so like, what was, do you remember the first large scale project you were put in as the head of? That's a good question. Actually. I feel like I've like been in, in charge of a lot of projects. It's, I think it's, I don't That's a good question. Actually. I might have to think about that one. All right. Yeah. We'll circle circle back to (laughs) that. Yeah. That one, that one's actually, that one might stump me. I feel like I've (laughs) I've been part of like so many teams and so many projects. Like this is like one of the, the things that's interesting, like about my, like kind of my career, I guess is like, you know, I, I like go and work for myself and I like love it so much, but then I like, miss this element of being part of the team and like, you know, and, and missing like the whole package. And then I go back to working a job and I'm like, Oh fuck, this sucks. And you go back from <laughs> working for myself and then I go back and I'm like, fuck, it's so lonely here. Yeah. <laughs> and, I go, and I go back and forth. And like, I think like that also has like, you know, like kind of shaped me. It gives me new talents, I guess. Like, and then I go back and it's like, you know, and, and, and so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really hard. I mean, if I've, I've done like a lot of projects, I just, I can't really even think of like one that I feel like I'm like, I would even want to take claim of spend on such projects with teams because they're so big and they're so involved. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let, before we get off machines, we had a ton of questions about the Matt Suras. Oh, yeah. So let's get into those. Uh, this is Jared not sponsored. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jared Raining asked, "What do you like and dislike about the Matsura controls, and what kind of tolerances do you normally hold?" Yeah, the so the Matsura control is is a pretty unique one. So it's kind of an interesting one when you when you go from using something like a Haas, right? So I get this question quite a bit. Like people are switching over from a Haas to looking at a Matsura or Heidehine or like all these different operations, different controllers and stuff like that. And I have a lot of experience in all of them. So it's kind of, but the Matsura one is, is pretty unique. Like number one, like one of the main reasons why I kind of picked the Matsura is like, I have like such an epic team, like that helps me at Selway. Like, not only like helping me financially and like making sure I like get the best deal or, you know, financial assistance when I find a good deal on something or if some, you know, trading happens, like I'm like the first one offered, like that's like number one of like why I've kind of like started to go kind of Haas and Matsura back and forth. So like that, but the, the control is an interesting one. And, and so like what's, what's really interesting about the control is like it, you know, if you're a fanic person, it's like you kind of know the drill already. But Matsura has their own kind of unique twist on the fanic control. But I really like it. It works really, really well. It has a lot of stuff. Like, I feel like I need to go to Japan and hang out at the factory and just tell them, like, what you need to do is you need to buy a Haas controller and bolt it onto a Matsura. <laughs> and you will have built the best machine possible. Like, like literally the the work this work speed and like the fast keys and the way you can move on a Haas controller is pretty unique. Like you can get really fast on these like fanic controllers and stuff, but there's still a lot of built-in safety things. So like what takes a little bit of time to get used to, 
is really just things like, you know, like, uh, let's say I want to like, you know, do something, I have to like turn a key, like from, from basically manual to auto. And it's like some safety stuff. And I think a lot of it sometimes is like a kind of a Japanese culture, like safety culture on a bunch of that stuff. So there is a lot of things like that, that add a little bit to it. And it's weird because now that like, I pretty much run them every day, I don't really think about it, but it does take a little bit of time and people get a little frustrated in the beginning. Like, you know, they're just like, Oh, what the fuck? Like this is the stupid little key, <laughs> you know, like this key doesn't need to be here. Right. <laughs> like it would be like the same as like on for Haas people. Like you have the little key on the side there by the light switch. It'd be like imagining like every time you're going to do something, you had to turn that key and then type something in and then turn it back. Right. So like it does get a little repetitive on some of that stuff but I wouldn't deter someone from buying it because of those little things. There's a bunch of like interesting things like, you know, it's kind of a hybrid of the Fanuc control. So it does have some like cool UI and like it has a little bit more bubbly screens than what a normal Fanuc controller looks like. But really overall, it's pretty much the same. All the controllers are like kind of the same, but really it's like, man, the the Haas controller is like, it's just such an awesome controller. You can just go so fast and, you know, it's like simple things like, like the thing I'll leave with the controller is like, you know, one of the things that like drives me crazy is like just being able to write, you know, look up in the Haas and I see pocket 10 has that tool and I just put in P10 and like tool change forward and it comes around, right? Like that doesn't, you can't do that. That's the Matsura. Sort of, <laughs> right. You can't just look in the window and say, you know, tool 87 or pocket 87 and it comes up, you have to go to a list and you have to do it. So it's like, there's a bunch of little things and like, I don't know, some of that stuff, probably there's probably a way, but, and then, yeah, for tolerance stuff, like, you know, one of the main reasons I've kind of started to like push that way is, you know, materials are getting more and more intense. I think in my life, right. Between Invar, Inconel, Hastelloy, like, you know, 700, 600, like all the titaniums, like grade grade five like you know all these like 15 15 grade 15s like grade ones like twos like all these weird exotic like you know all these harder materials and i just started realizing just like the haas like it does a great job but then there's just a point like it's crazy if you if you put a haas umc next to that matsura 850 and you made the same exact cut, like it's pretty wild. You would know the Haas is struggling. And the Matsura, it's crazy. That 850, some days it'll be cut in titanium. We won't even know it's running. We have to go over <laughs> and look at it in the window. It's like so amazing, like how beefy that thing is. And like if you, you know, look at some of these, you know, like a, you know, DMG, DMU, like the way it's, you know, constructed, same with the Matsura 850 and a bunch of, the Hermely, like the Kumas, the way they're constructed is like separating things so you don't have stack ups. So, you know, like a Haas, you have a, a linear way on top of a linear way. So you have like some movement and some harmonics that go between the different linear rails. So, you know, these machines, they have like separate everything, right? So the linear rails for X are on a, on a casting. The casting has the Y axis, you know, you don't have overlapping rails. So you get this like extremely tight, super rigid machine. I mean, looking at the rails on the 850 is crazy. They're like two inches wide. Oh, They're man. so massive. It's awesome. 
That's killer. So this might be a good time to talk about you replacing your personal DTs then with another 330. Wow. I got one still. I can't get rid of it. <laughs> so oh, do you still have like, one? Yeah. Well, I had two of them and then, uh, yeah, then, yeah. So just sold off the one. And the main reason there was a, there was a customer that Selway had that was trading in one of their Matsuras to get a bigger one. And so I actually kind of wheeled and dealed and yeah, I got, got a super good price on a, a used 330 to add to the other 330 I have. So, so now we got two of them in the house and then we still have one little DT one that's also set up for five axis. And that one's like, that one's got everything. It's got scales. It's got everything. It's like it's like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar DT one, <laughs> which no one. Just as a note, no one should ever buy a hundred and fifty thousand dollar DT one. That one actually was built specifically for Apple. Apple decided to back out of the deal, and 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 they bought ended up buying other hoses and other machines. But they uh, that one ended up staying staying round and then i got a good deal on it so i ended up paying 50 grand for it and it was brand new so uh, it was a pretty sweet deal and it came with a trunnion and everything so it's it's pretty 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 stout little machine i i gave that one i say that one's crystal's machine so (laughs) she runs it all day it's pretty awesome yeah i just assumed you didn't have room for two 330s and a dt so i was like oh of course you got rid of both i had this plan the other day i was talking about i was like if I, cause you know, I got all the like toe jacks and stuff. I was like, so if I cut the roof off the house and I slowly raise it like, like an inch a week, like, like aesthetically, you shouldn't be able to see the roof going up. <laughs> 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 like, but like every year it'll go up like a few feet so that I can build a mezzanine in there. That <laughs> 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 way the building inspector has no idea what's going on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Slowly over I the course of years. my cover. <laughs> my guess the building inspector listens to the podcast. <laughs> of course. Yes. I'm sure. <laughs> Jack Vanderpoels asked, do you actually use the flat surface on the side of the C-axis that's on the oh, Matsuras? On the, eight, on the 850, yeah. yeah. So it's actually pretty interesting. So only time we use it, actually, it's it's pretty unique to do it. But sometimes like when we're like super backlogged on jobs <laughs> or if we have these goofy jobs, we're like, let's say we just have to cut like or drill a hole in the end of a rod or some or you know, mill something goofy on like keyway or something like that and put a hole in the end. So we'll use those on the side of the machine to basically clamp like a long bar on it. We also do every so often, like if there's something booked up or if we're already switched over to that machine to a certain metal, we'll put a Kurt vice on the side there and then we'll do first stage in there and then we'll do the, you know, the fifth axis in the center. And then sometimes we'll even put one on the other side. We did like years back, Autodesk did a, a belt buckle. I think it was Tim and Al and a few and CJ. They did a belt buckle with Matsura and Selway. And it was pretty cool. They basically kind of showed exactly that same thing. First stage was dovetailing. Second stage was five axis, like milling everything. And then the last stage on the right side of the table was taking the dovetail off. So it can be totally usable. The, you know, there is another option for a table, which is like a big 700 millimeter table you're doing like big gears or something like that and you know you're not gonna be like getting to the center of the table it's definitely a cool table to have but it's an option but if you have to get to the center the table is so big that it basically hits the spindle (laughs) so you only want to do it if you know your parts 
Otherwise, it's kind of go with the other table. Plus, it's cool because that table is also the same as like the 520 if you get the standalone. So you can switch back and forth tooling. Oh, cool. That's very cool. So I imagine alongside with these Matsuras, you guys had to pick up some inspection equipment too. What what have you had to do for that? Yeah, so we do still do a lot of on-machine inspection on stuff, but we bought the Mitutoyo Chrysalin CMM. So basically I can do three by six part, built the temperature controlled room, got it all dialed in. It was super cool. I mean, the software that comes with the Mitutoyo is a little bit difficult to get used to. It's definitely got its quirks. I'm sure some people listening have used it, <laughs> have their gripes. But, I mean, the accuracy of the machine is insane. It's awesome. It does a great job. The support's pretty good. Like, yeah, overall, I mean, it's been it's been good. It's brand new. So that's been a lot of fun to actually get to kind of get into that. A lot of times, like, you know, doing all these prototypes, you don't spend that much time doing, like, that really intense inspection. So it's kind of interesting because with the satellite, we actually, we have to learn a lot about what things do. So we do our own in-house inspection when we build the part. So we build the data map like of the parts that we're building. And then we send them over in our other building. And we have these uh, different, we have a different environmental lab like that not only does heat, but does cold. So we have thermal vacuums. So we chill the parts down into like, we'll sometimes go to like negative 180 C. And we'll actually like, you know, let the part relax that way. We'll put it in the oven and then we'll bring it up to 150 C. And we basically let the part kind of, and we're like riding sometimes borderline of like kneeling on some of the alloys. So we bring it up there and then we let this material relax. We'll take it back out, put on the mid Toyo and like, we'll watch, we'll watch what moves around. Cause you know, one of the interesting things about the spacecraft is like, you might have a 300 degree C difference in temperature from one end. It might be two feet apart. It might even be three inches apart. There might be, you know, that much of a temperature difference. If the sun is hitting one side, you're at a hundred and something. And if you're on the cold side, just it could be literally on the other side of a panel. It would be like negative. So it's pretty interesting. We have to like, like we have to keep it going deeper and deeper on kind of the metallurgy as well as like stress relieving as well as like all the weird stuff. And a lot of that is like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's a bit of like just experience. It's a bit of kind of tribal knowledge. And it's also like a total bit of just like wild west. So it's pretty unique to actually have a machine now where we can work on the reverse engineer of our own parts, which is pretty unique. So that's been kind of fun. Yeah, it's 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 a weird range of temperatures, like, you know, but on the other hand, like when I was doing nuclear, we were in the positive 600 degrees C, where stainless Jeez. steel was actually like turning <laughs> like orange and staying orange 24 hours a day. We were like riding the fine line. So it's like, you know, it's, it's interesting to have all these jobs where I've been dealing with these extremes of temperatures and extreme alloys and, and like, you know, dealing with ceramics, dealing with, you know, glass, dealing with metals. Pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. Like, it's definitely like a lot of challenges of like, what you're going to cut and how you're going to cut it. And mostly just kind of like, I don't know, cowboy style, just going for it, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So I wanted to talk about a little bit about sourcing parts as well, because you've been 
fairly vocal, I think, on Instagram oh, of, you know, having all kinds of issues with, you know, zometry and places like that. Yeah. Why do you keep using them? And what is their value proposition to you that you, you keep going back? Is it ISO stuff? Is it ITAR? You know, yeah, why do you our, use these places? Ask our buyers. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, a lot of it is like, you know, what, what happens is like, you know, it's loudest wheel gets the grease, right? So it's kind of like... Uh, you know, these engineers are working on these projects. We're on critical timelines. You know, we have like really solid background of good machine shops that we deal with for flight components, you know, and I've, I've fine tooth combed every bit of our vendor supply chain so that we get not only like, you know, ISO, AS9100, NADCAP, like we get like that high level of expectation out of our flight vendors. But like we still have this like large amount of prototyping and tooling and stuff that we have to work on. And a lot of that stuff is just like, you know, it's not super critical stuff. It's it's plate work, like, you know, it's flanges, magnesium stuff. We do we do a lot of magnesium. We do a lot of like plate uh, fixturing for like our aerospace specific clean room welding stuff, fixtures. So it's not hard stuff, but like I've just been, you know, and, and I don't want to like point out any of the vendors like specifically, you, you know, you know who they are. They're like the classic online advertisements that are pumping, you know, as much advertisements as possible, like to these buyers. And, you know, the, the problem with some of these is they're going to China, they're going to India, they're going all over the place. And what's happening is basically, you know, they're, they're promising 10 days. Basically, they send it overseas and they're, you know, they're trying to like hide. They started out with U.S. vendors. They started out with good suppliers. They burn those. They like now those relationships have been burned. They're turning to next cheapest possible spot. A lot of them are going to India. A lot of them going all over the place. And, you know, they're expecting that like overnight freight, like global freight to get the parts in and. And, you know, there's still is American made parts that are having problems, but man, it's just, it blows my mind. Like, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if it's like the race to the bottom, like people getting frustrated or if it's like just the lack of like detail. I don't know. I've been really, really disappointed in a lot of the stuff we've been getting from some of these fast turn online vendors, you know, and, and it's, it's a bummer because like, uh, it just doesn't, it just shouldn't happen. Like. You know, we, we got parts in from one of them that said they were pay, making them in the United States and clearly weren't made in the U.S. <laughs> you can tell by the packaging. <laughs> oh, jeez. And, you know, it's like that. We got one. I don't know. I put I put a picture up. We had some weld fixtures made and the anodized showed up and we went to wipe it down with alcohol and the anodized wiped off. Right? Oh, like, no. We got one part that was like some face fittings that were turned that had so much chatter on them. If you tighten that fitting up, the face-to-face -face contact probably would have had a spray, like a spray pattern coming out of it, like a fan, <laughs> you know, like we had that. What else did we have? We've had a lot of parts show up that were missing features, missing holes. We had, oh man, I just like, it's a company that starts with an X. And I've said, <laughs> sat in so many one-on-one -on -one <laughs> meetings, yelling at the CEOs, the quality directors, just over and over and over again, like just such frustrating meetings with them. And, you know, like went down every possible path to try to like solve this 
whether it be every part was shipped from the vendor to this company, they did an in-house inspection before they sent it to us, still pass or still failing, like, you know, still failing things. Like, it's just super frustrating. Like, and, you know, I think it's like, you know, as these companies, these faster companies get greedier, they're taking more off the top trying to cover like their high marketing, high, high advertising costs. They're leaving less on the table for the people actually doing the work. And it's super frustrating because it's tarnishing their reputation. Good shops don't want to work with them. They're, you know, the good shops are tired of it. They like realize that it makes more sense to not take the work and wait for a good job with less stress to come along and, and then you know, make the same amount of money. Like it's kind of weird because like mentally it kind of messes with your brain. Like you feel like you need to take that work sometimes. And so you're like, you're like really frustrated, you know, you're like, I got to take it. I got to take it. And sometimes saying no is like actually the right call, but it, it's a hard, hard one to grasp. You know, it looks like an easy job and it ends up coming back to bite you in the ass. And so it's, it's frustrating that the people that are doing the work are, uh, you know, and, and a lot of it is like when you actually learn the margins on some of these, that's when you get frustrated. Like I didn't know the margins on some of these companies until I seen a lot of the back, you know, the behind the scenes. Then I got really frustrated. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because yeah, it's it just, yeah, it's frustrating all around. I, I totally understand. Uh, Especially when you go on a job board and you see like parts for $50 a piece and you're like, I'm going to spend $35 on per piece on material. And by the time I buy a drill and then when you go behind the scenes and you realize that, you know, they charge the custom customer like 480 bucks apart, you know, and like, yep. like basically you're like, they're going to profit $400 off of just connecting the dot, you know, like, and, and it, that's the part that's frustrating because like it's gotten gradually greedier as it's gone along. And it's a really like huge bummer to see that like, some of those companies have tried to protect some of those legacy vendors that did good work, but they're fading out. Like they just don't want to deal with it anymore. I mean, the safest company out there is probably Proto Labs, mostly because they've built their own in-house system, and you know, kind of works. But you know, who knows? Yeah, even we'll they see. have their their own yeah. issues for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, well that's a bummer. Do you think that that's fuel that you can use though to kind of you know incentivize? your company to buy a MAM or, or more automated machinery. So you can pump out, you know, easier parts like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I try not to use that though. I mean, it's also like, it's kind of like, it's like ammo that you want to have, but you shouldn't use all the time. Right. And so it's, it also speaks volumes. Like when we're cranking out good parts and we're doing it as fast and as easy, and then we can go throw it back on a machine and do a modification. So you know, a lot of times like not being the loud squeaky wheel is more volumes than, <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> it's important. And, and not to mention, like, I mean, sometimes if you bring that up too much, you end up being the shop that does all the nickels and dimes and all the stuff that you want to make gets sent elsewhere, you know? So right. it's also important to like find that balance where you're not burning out your team or yourself working on nickels and dimes that you're actually doing the value added. So I'm totally okay with sending stuff out and that's totally great. We have great network of people and we're always looking for more, but a lot of it is just like, yeah, picking the battles so that we're not like kicking our own ass. Yeah. I think that totally makes sense. Uh, so you had, when we had talked about you coming back on the podcast, you had said you wanted to talk a little bit about 
building your own shop while working at a day job. So let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting topic. Someone I, I've gotten asked a few times about it. And it's, it's always interesting, because it's like a weird perspective. Because it's sometimes hard, because like, I think like, when we're looking at social media, we're like fed such deep, like, we see everyone buying new machines, we see people like upgrading, we see people landing sweet deals. And like, I think there's always this like, factor drive to like go faster go faster go faster and like push all the cards in on every hand you know <laughs> and like and and it's interesting because like the only you know the, the thing i wanted to like talk about it because you know i've seen it a lot lately and like and it's just mostly like it's it's a question that comes up quite a bit to me because like i think people see that i'm like somehow balancing like this like home shop you know that's making still tons of money but also like working a full-time job and managing a whole team like heading up manufacturing so it's it's like a it's pretty interesting and so you know the like one thing i just wanted to talk about was ma- basically like just remind people to like pace themselves and like just remember that like sometimes it takes a long time to do this kind of stuff you know and like you know sometimes like going outside of your means to buy something immediately because you think you need it isn't <laughs> sometimes it's hard, you know, we're fed like all this stuff about buying all this stuff. And, and I was, you know, I was, I was thinking, cause we were talking, cause you had brought it up about, you know, it's crazy. You got the Matsura now. And, uh, and like you went from Haas and I'm like, I was thinking back, I was like, nah, it's a bridge port to a prototrack to a prototrack to a Fidal, <laughs> Fidal to Haas. <laughs> and each one of these was dirty, hammered and beat. <laughs> And so don't get me wrong. And I was thinking like, you know, I didn't have any money to start. And I've just been around good people that have always kind of used machinery dealers that have been friends of mine that have been willing to like lend me, you know, like basically like kind of self-finance, like, you know, pay me like, uh, you know, 2000 bucks a month. Right. And I'll get you this Haas. Right. Like that kind of, you know, mindset. And and I was just thinking back and I was like, man, sometimes we get sucked into this and we go outside of our means. And I just wanted to remind people that it doesn't, doesn't sometimes it's super important to remember, like, you know, sometimes like the long road is the, the best road on certain aspects, you know? Totally. So let me ask you this, because, you know, you were talking about social media on social media. You seem like someone who has a limitless energy who can work all hours of the day and and can balance these things. But I imagine there is some tips and tricks you can share with us on balancing two workloads. Because it's not like you are at a day job that you can kind of fade into the background (laughs) while you're working mostly. You're leading projects. So how do you balance all of this? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, like, is also just knowing that, like, you knowing your boundaries, right? So you know, every so often, like, like, just like going back to like, you know, accepting these jobs on the job boards, these nickels and dimes, right. So it's really important to like balance yourself out, right, so that you're not overwhelming yourself with nickels and dimes, right. These nickels and dimes are interesting, too. Because like, when you are building a shop, you have to remember that, like, if you're taking on like a lot of these nickels and dimes, like, you're looking at, like, uh, you know, like, I did a lot of this work for a long time. So I have like a really good idea an example but you know let's say we take on a job for a hundred dollars right but we have to buy a bunch of drills and we have to buy a bunch of this stuff because we don't have a lot of this stuff yet right so every job we take we're basically like net 
net neutral or net negative, right? Right. But like we're building assets, right? And so it is really important to still build assets and buy tools and build equipment. And you can sometimes use these jobs as your like way to kind of build assets and tooling. But it's really interesting sometimes like, you know, if you get too out of control, these end up just driving your life. Right? You have all these nickel and dime jobs. You're driving across town, going to the anodizer for a $40 job, you know, and it's like, and so like, you know, when I tried my best to try to find this balance where I can, you know, manage a team and like also be able to be involved in all these major projects. And a lot of that has just been able to, you know, find myself to like know what is important and what's not to like take on and know like if it's something that like really actually excites me as well. Like a lot of my limitless energy comes from the fact that I'm like, completely in love and driven on this craft and trade of building stuff, welding, fabrication, forming, you know, like molding everything. Like I'm like, and, and so some of my love is just, just working into the night of working on stuff. And so that's one of the reasons why I can keep going a lot more sometimes, but, but yeah, like it's interesting. It's, it's definitely like everyone's different. Everyone's unique. But finding that balance point of being able to, you know, pick those jobs and make sure that you're taking on the right job and that you see something in the future from that too, whether that be assets, whether that be financial or whether that be skill to make that to make that worth it. Okay. Well, so what do you think your top two or three red flags for a job are? Like when something comes across your desk for your home shop, what will make Besides, you know, just stupid low pricing, but like, what are other things that will make you just go, nope, this is a no quote, or like, this is something we just want, we, we don't do. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just dive into how much you're going to spend like on, on it financially. Right. So if you got to put a lot into it, I mean, that's, that's like one of the main things, like we kind of take it for granted sometimes. Cause we're just like, we all love to buy tools. Right. But like at the end of the day, we also like to eat too. So right. <laughs> it's like really important to really dive into that. And then a lot of it is also just like thinking back to what you've done before. Like what, what parts have you done that are like this? What can you use as an example? How did you approach it? I mean, sometimes like it looks easy to begin with and the last 10% of it is the hardest part, you know? We have parts at work that are like that where it's really easy to get to a good point where it's like a wall, <laughs> like getting over that like last 10% is a wall, right? These are the trickiest parts where they're the thinnest and most difficult to like hold fixture and do all that stuff. And so like just making sure that you're like spending that time just thinking it out and, and you know, cause the last thing you want to do is get yourself into a, a bind and one of, one of the biggest difficulties there is like you get yourself into a bind and it starts to derail you all the way through the day, the next day and the following day while you're at work, you know, and, and it's like you have to remember your day job should be actually your priority. And even though you like mentally think it's probably not, it is your priority. It's also your safety net right now. So like making sure that you're actually still in the right mental state and like doing good job at your day job is really important. And so um, picking those that allow you to kind of like finish at a good point, like, you know, these jobs might go on for weeks, but, but knowing that like, there is a point where like you're, you're, you know, you can get to these stopping points every day 
or, you know, someone else can help you load it or whatever. And so that's like just being able to have the mental capacity to go in the next day and no one at that job knows that you're, you're like cranking at the night, you know, like if everyone at your job knew that you're making more money at night than you were at the day. (laughs) (laughs) So, but if you look tired, you know, then like everyone's going to have a problem with, and so like, it's super, super important to like, you know, find that balance so that you're not dragging. Totally. Yeah. Is there anything you won't touch at your shop? Like for example, Brad and I, we just decided after a few jobs that we just don't do composites anymore. Like no FR4, no carbon. Cause we just don't like, that's a coolant flush for sure. And that's, you know, respirators and stuff like that. And so we just say, Nope, that's an instant no quote. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of that stuff. And, and, you know, like a lot of that stuff too is like, if you want to be, you know, if you want to get that efficiency when you're first starting out, like it's, it's easy to say yes to everything that comes in the door. Right. And it can be totally out of your realm. Right. It's like someone that's having you do a bunch of things and they're like, Oh, I want you to like help me weld this fence. <laughs> you're like, right. uh, okay. Like it's like totally out of my scope. Right. So like figuring out a way to like also just narrow your scope and make sure that your scope is narrow enough so that you do have that extra capacity to still go to that job, you know, and there will be a time where like maybe that job is, you know, it's time to change it up and it's time to go work for yourself. Like, but you don't, you want your, you don't want to get to that point where you make that decision and your company's happy to see it go. You want to leave (laughs) with your company being pissed that you're like thinking about leaving. Right. And so, you know, making sure that you, you know, have that capability is super important. And so narrowing that focus is like one of the most important things. So, you know, if you have a small like mini mill in your garage, like you're not taking on parts that are, you know, 48 inches long and you're like, oh, great. Now I got to call around to a shop and try to find some shop to like do this and do that. You know, sometimes being honest with the customer is actually more satisfying to the customer and there always is a risk. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, sending a customer away can be like dangerous. Right. But also like, you know, like when you build a relationship with someone, it's also really important to like, you know, help them in the best way, shape or form. Right. If you have a part that's 60 inches, tell them about the shop down the street, you know? And it's like when you're at work and that shop's getting the work, like done, like, you know, and it's getting done and you, it's off your plate and it's, And it's a little bit of a slow road to building a business, but man, it's like, it's kind of fun and enjoyable and relaxing. You're not super stressing and pinging out super hard. And like, there's always those times, but like, it's definitely a different pace at doing it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's not for everyone, but it's definitely like one of those things where I always try to like talk to people about it. And like, I just like to let people know that it's okay for it to take years to do this, you know, like it's easy to get sucked into the Haas financing or it's easy to like go on eBay and buy it now. But you know, it's, <laughs> it's really important <laughs> to, to remember. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's one of those things where it feels like such a long road. Yeah. And then looking back, you're like, man, I feel like it was yesterday. Like yeah, I know exactly. when Brad and I first started Prodium, we both, we had this just insanely naive thing of like, okay, so like in six months, we'll be self-sufficient and we'll both quit our jobs and we'll be working here full time. And it took four years or, you know, four and a half years for one of us to go full time. And yeah, yeah, it it just, but also looking back on it, I'm like, that was the quickest four years of my life. Like this is, 
you know, it was both a long time and just yesterday. So yeah, it's also a great opportunity to like kind of find what you want to do and not have the pressure and the stress of like having to immediately decide, right? Like maybe you, you buy a mill and a lathe and you're like, man, I just want to do the lathe work. Right. And you like, you're not like pressured to have to immediately take jobs in. Like you can set up, you can dial tooling in, you can build libraries, you can like really get it the way you want. And like you have this like safety net of this day job. And then when you want to go on your own, you're like ready to rock and like you have the right mental capacity and you're like ready, you know, and you're coming into it like refreshed. You're not coming into it tired, like which is kind of a special, unique, you know, opportunity. So, yeah, it's that's like, you know, I think about my first machine and I think about my like current machines and I'm like, I'm like, man, it's been such a road. <laughs> it's yeah. been, but it's cool. It's like, it's also happened really fast when you think about it, like what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, looking back on it. It feels so weird. Like thinking <laughs> how long it's been and yet how short it's been. Yep. Uh, all right. I want to get a little bit into a project recap on for you, we had just a million <laughs> questions about your projects. Uh, like four or five people, Molly No, Huffy Built, Fry Fabrication, Bob 67, and Velas Precision, <laughs> and I think more, all asked, what's going on with the espresso maker? <laughs> yeah, I cut some parts for it recently. I cut some like titanium yolks and some stuff. I've been getting really into like investment casting and also like sand casting, so... I have, I'm working on a goofy project for it. I want to basically build this crazy like auger. Like it's kind of like if you took an injection molding like machine, like an electric injection molding machine, I want to make that into like the porta filter. So I want to grind the beans and I want to feed it into like basically an injection mold and then close it and inject the, and then have it open up. And so I've, been sketching up some of the yolks and stuff i want to have sand cast in <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> Dude, i can't finish this i mean in like remember it's gonna be like when i'm 92 years old is when the first cup of coffee happens so right it's your worry. retirement this, gift to yourself this is gonna be every podcast we do is gonna have this question <laughs> in it so it'll happen sooner or later but we're gonna be really really old by the time get that first cup of coffee <laughs> and i always like to remind everyone that it'll probably taste like shit <laughs> it'll probably be the cup of coffee that gives me like copper poisoning or something oh no <laughs> um i am struggling to find it but someone asked for a plane update yeah the plane yeah so i've just been i got most of the fab stuff done it's we're pretty much like crystal and i are pretty much at this point where we're ready to kind of start assembling the wings but we need to get everything powder coated. So I basically want to assemble the wings and I want to put it on and just do a test fit up. Problem is we put two Matsuras where the plane was supposed to be. Oh, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> so like uh, we have the plane in our living room currently and it's the only spot we can get it to fit. But it's cool. It's It's actually like a really nice thing to have in your living room. So it's cool to look at. But yeah, I basically <laughs> need to like, get it off to powder coat, get, get that stuff done. I've been, I've been just kind of waiting on powder coating just in case I wanted to change something, but I feel like I just got to fucking coat it so that like, it kind of like locks it in. <laughs> no changes. <laughs> yeah. Design freeze. Just get it done. <laughs> uh, Bob 67 asks favorite bicycle you've built. And then we also had somebody ask, are there any current bicycle builds? Bicycles or motorcycles? What do you think? 
Uh, I think they're probably talking about bicycles, but okay. Nick also asked motorcycles. So uh, we'll, we'll get into that next. Not much, not much bicycle stuff lately. Just like a bunch of miscellaneous stuff. Been building for a few different uh, big OEM companies. Lots of like little five axis stuff for suspension parts and, and stuff like that. That's kind of my contribution to the bike industry. Bunch of little parts and stuff. But yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, I always have this dream of, building bike parts back in america it's cool to see like the fifth axis guys doing it it's pretty inspiring like it gets me pretty excited about knowing that like they're building fifth axis vices and they're building the whole entire u.s bike industry back up like in the same (laughs) shop i'm like damn this is like it's crazy to see these guys are like cranking out the money (laughs) yeah seriously Uh, yeah, they basically picked the two most expensive things you could possibly think of in life, bicycles and center centering vices. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, not not much bike stuff lately. I mean, honestly, the satellite project is getting the satellite to this point of getting it in space. I mean, it's crazy how much stuff like, you know, I'm picking up kind of on like the a point on the project where I'm kind of like kind of three quarters, like half to three quarters of this first satellite, this prototype. A lot of it was designed, a good majority of it was built. It was kind of being a, like somewhat assembled when I started, but like really I just jumped in at full speed. We did a lot of ground support stuff, like everything that is used to fuel it at SpaceX, everything's used to lift it at SpaceX. I spent most of my time just kind of helping the team building stuff like that. And that's just really just consumed. It's kind of intoxicating. This this company is kind of like, if you imagine what JPL was like in like 1969 or 1975, right? Like, it's like everyone's young. Everyone's so excited about space. Everyone's got tons of like space or weird backgrounds. Everyone's just so excited. And it's like intoxicating. I find myself there like 10, 12 hours (laughs) a day. And I'm like, damn it. Like, and I, you know, I work with like a bunch of really good dudes that like are super badass, like machinists. I have one guy that I work with. He's been a aerospace welder for 30 plus years now. McDonald Douglas, Boeing, Raytheon. Fuck, like he ran like a large majority of SpaceX's weld shop for a while, like both down in Starship, both in Hawthorne, jumping back and forth. He was at ABL for a while, like, and like, me being an aerospace welder and getting to work with someone like that is like so rad. I get to like learn so much and I get paid for it right now, which is super <laughs> cool. And it really is like, it really invigorated my like love for aerospace welding. Like it's what I started out when I was like 15. I had this dream of like running away from my parents' house and all I wanted to do is burn argon. I moved to LA like when I was 18 I did an interview at a place called SpaceX. It wasn't even in Hawthorne yet. It was in El Segundo. They said I was way too young and way too excited about welding, that no welder <laughs> should be young and excited about welding as much as me. And I didn't get the job, which ended up ironically like like 15 plus years later, that guy that interviewed me happened to be like one of my new mentors, like, and also co-workers, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's like, it's crazy to like, think how it like circles back around. And, but yeah, it's like, I don't know. I just, all I wanted to do is weld. And so to work around someone that's been doing it for a really long time and like also loves it as much as me, like 
to get to spend time in the clean room and like it's crazy like just it got me so excited about it again like it was good because like I was getting to a point where like machining was kind of like I was like I feeling like I was hitting this point where I was like kind of plateauing out where I was like ah I'm getting I'm getting good but I'm like I know I could get better but I need to like commit to this to get to this next level which is like micro machining and like all these other levels but you know this welding thing just got me so excited again <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> that's killer I'm really happy to hear that it's fun <laughs> uh your friend and my Nick Valence asked if you get cool again someday what motorcycle would you buy oh, I don't know because he bought your last motorcycle right? yeah he <laughs> I felt like when I was moving the machines around, I was pushing the motorcycle in and out all day because I was running out of stuff. <laughs> and so then I just ended up selling it to him. No, I think if I'm going to buy anything, probably buy probably a Harley Davidson trike. Nah, fuck that. <laughs> no, probably, I don't know. I like super into like, honestly, I just want a bike where I can just fucking go as deep into the forest as possible. And also go like super far distance is probably be like a one of those Honda African twins. It's kind of like an enduro, like Paris Dakar style bike. Put some big bags on it and just fucking go. <laughs> Alaska, yeah, super like, cool. Forever. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. I don't know. I just kind of want to just like go into nowhere. I think like I go from like this far extreme of like super super tech involved like. You know, it's crazy. Like I was talking about the other day, I was like, when I worked for Elon, I, I had to have a shop space. And so they put me in the building with chat, you know, which was open AI. Now it's chat GBT, right? And so I shared a space with those guys, you know, and it's like, I went from one end of the spectrum where like I was involved in like around these super cutting edge. I'm always like in this like super tech thing, but then I want to go like 180 degrees opposite, which is completely <laughs> remote, no internet, nothing like deep Canada, like nothing. <laughs> so there's nothing really in the middle I want to do. It's just far one end or the other. <laughs> uh, Nick also asked, tell us the craziest thing you have welded. Oh, I don't know. I mean, the satellite's pretty cool. Like, I mean, it's always cool to see that kind of stuff. Lots of weird stuff to to the bottom of the ocean. Lots of weird robots have worked on. I mean, Neuralink, as much as like I can say. I mean, Neuralink is like one of my things that I'm really proud of as being a welder. I figured out how to like build a lot of parts using welding techniques that I've learned over the years to build components that are the parts that basically are inserted into your brain uh, during like the Neuralink surgery concept, right? So to be able to figure out how to weld stuff like that, that's probably the smallest and most precise and probably my biggest accomplishment. <laughs> wow. um, and it was pretty cool. I mean, we used to, we used to vacuum braze all the components and I just came up with a different strategy, kind of combining my CNC background plus welding background and came up with a way to basically weld components. And it was super, super fun. I mean, it was like, it was like, you know, in the early days, it was like 10, 12 of us at Neuralink. We were just having a great, great time. Like, and it was pretty wild, you know, to help kind of speed up that project. So, I mean, that was a pretty inspiring point to also when you get to stoke out Elon, like, it's also pretty cool. <laughs> you know, he was pretty stoked on it and it worked and it was cool. And we, 
basically just multiplied it and we made it so we could take and we could make parts that we used to make two of them a day. We could get into the hundreds in a day. Whoa. So, that's crazy. Yeah, pretty pretty wild. I mean, like to do to do like the Neuralink style things, like if you do a little background on it, there's like, you know, what's publicly available. There's a chip and then there's like, you know, these like kind of tentacle looking things. So those tentacles, like, you know, they're the pieces that are inserted in between blood vessels in, in your brain. And so those are like, they're extremely micro, like smaller than a hair. So to put a weld on them is pretty involved. <laughs> that's insane. So, yeah, that's probably one of the cooler things. And I don't know, honestly, like building bikes is also really fun. It's there's something weird about you can build stuff for Boeing and you can build stuff for like, but some of the coolest projects are always the projects that are like the most simple and fun, you know? Yeah. They, they make that emotional connection that you, you keep for a while. Uh, metal Mark asked, is there something that you have yet to machine that you would like to? So whether that's a metal that you haven't or a material or just some kind of part that you wish you had machined. Yeah, I'm like I'm like infatuated right now with like extreme tolerance, like turning, machining, like stuff that people are doing on diamond turn machines. Like I just keep reading <laughs> as much as I can, learning as much as I can, optics for telescopes. It's it's pretty wild. I think like it's kind of like where I want to go and what I want to know. I don't know if it I don't know if it's what I want to do. But I, Tom Lipton says I'm, I have too short of attention span to do that level of work. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's right. But basically, yeah, just these like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm really just I think like understanding how to even measure the stuff is pretty unbelievable. So there's that. I, I don't know. It's it's that like kind of world that that I'm, it's just like kind of unexplored for me. I'm also like. You know, in the in the Bay Area f- is one of the special places for people that build mirrors. So a lot of the James Webb satellite was basically the space telescope was built not too far away from my shop here in the Bay Area. And yeah, it's pretty wild. Like that's a special type of work to be able to grind, machine and deal with beryllium. It takes a lot of like actual like sacrifice on your body, right? So you have to get your like when you're dealing with that level of beryllium, you have to get blood samples quite a bit. You have to deal with a lot of just risk associated with it. And you could build up your whole career dealing with beryllium and then literally have something go wrong and your career of working with beryllium is done. So it's kind of an interesting world to be involved in. And I spent a lot of time working with beryllium on another project. And with one of the main leading companies, Materion, which is also the company that built the James Webb Space Telescope. And so there's also like, there's also like, an, like I don't know if it's like the danger risk that I like. <laughs> like, I don't know, it's kind of a, a brilliant, it's just so special and so unique and its capabilities are so pretty wild. And then the other one that I'm really excited about lately, I bought a bunch of nitinol off of eBay. <laughs> Oh, cool. <laughs> so I want to build, been thinking about a, like basically a water jet or EDM'd Flexure that I want to build for like a deployment project. And so 
I think like I like building these like really quick iteration versions of things just for my own curiosity. So those are some of the things that I've been kind of excited and intrigued by lately. That's awesome. Well, that brings me to shop news and new things. Besides the new Matsura in your home shop, anything else new or exciting? Wait, what's your favorite? Favorite. What, what, do, what do you dream of cutting? <laughs> oh, man. I'm uh, turning it turning, on you. <laughs> diamond turning actually has been quite interesting to me lately. I think Is that, it Adam on Instagram posting yeah, all the... <laughs> yeah, I was talking I, a bunch to it. Adam. And I, told like they, him, I told yeah. him he's getting the internet excited about diamond turning. Also, just a quick pitch because it'll this will be out before then. There is a diamond turning workshop that is happening out in New York. Uh, it is like about 1300 bucks. And it's kind of, if you're in like New York, it's probably easier, but it's basically like a few days off for a few days. And then it's basically over like, I think a two and a half week period. So if anyone out there is like really intrigued by it, SpaceX has a bunch of openings. The The pay starts in like the 50 plus goes up into I think like $70 an hour. So it's a pretty pretty good job if you can get it yeah um there's a lot of a lot of good jobs in diamond turn right now especially with space industry but this workshop is happening i think it's like like basically july it's happening in rochester new york at the college they have pretty much the same machines as adam has and so if anyone out there is listening and is super excited about it reach out to adam probably because he's probably the guy that knows the most about it but I've been interested to go to that one. <laughs> I don't know if my work would be interested in me taking off three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just such a foreign part of machining. You know, it, like you said, I don't know how to measure things in that. I don't know how to like even touch <laughs> off tools or even how to think like you have to for a diamond turning lathe. So it, yeah, the whole thing just seems really cool. Yep, super cool. Yeah, lots of fun. I, I definitely am like, it's just also a massive barrier to entry. <laughs> so having people out there like Adam and this other this other school in Rochester, like having the equipment and willing to teach it and, and, and having the resources. And the Bay Area is really special for it too. Not only do we have like Lawrence Livermore Labs, we have, we have Tinsley, it's now Coherent. We have a whole bunch of different companies just in the area here that really specialize in it. So there's this like epic industry that exists with these wild projects, like projects that like, you know, take 10 plus years, some way quicker than that, but like historic projects. So like anyone listen out there that like wants something like, if you're like, you want to be involved in some really wild shit, that's what, that's where it's at right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah. what What's new in your world? It's cutting metal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just get getting ready. Been sewing a bunch. Kind of just, you know, I think like the true test of your crafts is can you sew up all your gear and then go survive in the woods for two weeks <laughs> using your own gear. So Crystal and I have been sewing. We're gonna we're gonna go up into Canada. We're gonna leave like northern Minnesota and go up into Canada and hopefully our gear holds up. My sewing is a little rowdy, but she's super good at it, so I just have her go over it once. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's cool, like just canoeing and just trying to like, now that the satellite's been, you know, launched and we are building the next batch of them and they launch in the fall, 
and yeah, basically like getting ready to hire a bunch of people at Astronus. So anyone listening, you know, we got some openings coming up for technicians. We have a bunch of machinist positions from kind of medium to entry level all the way up to up to uh, like advanced level, like five axis. Yeah, just kind of just having a good time. Just trying to go with the pace. <laughs> it's it's been a little bit crazy. I'm trying not to get sucked into the economy thing and like everyone freaking out. I mean, being in the Bay Area is kind of an interesting thing too because it's like the I think everything goes on the extremes. It's like banks are going down. Like people are getting laid off, and then I like step back and I'm like, wait, the people getting laid off are like these roles that actually needed. <laughs> they're like they're like party planner. <laughs> Facebook, right? And you're like, <laughs> oh, wait, like they're like cutting a bunch of these jobs because they're like, the news does a horrible job at like kind of explaining the roles that they're getting rid of, right? But yeah, it's like, yeah, I try not to get sucked into that. But yeah, I mean, mainly just trying to have a good time and get ready for summer and it's going to be good. It's like we got satellites up there and like having a good time. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Any new products coming from Cutting Time anytime soon? Oh man, I wish I had a bunch. <laughs> I've been so busy. Yeah, just working on just a bunch of miscellaneous stuff. I mean, the main thing I've been really dialing in is just how to produce them faster and more efficient. Just, you know, with the cost of material going up and everything. So so now we got the sprayers and all the the pause sprayer stuff on the cutting time website. We got it all dialed in so now we can make them faster. That way we didn't have to like increase prices with like the heightened anodize and the heightened material price. So uh, that's been cool that we can kept keep it the same. It's cool. We've sold like a few thousand now of these sprayers and I've like never imagined that it would sell that well. <laughs> like for like having zero advertisement and zero everything, just kind of like every day we put a few of them in a box and ship them out. And it's always super cool to like hear where they're going to. And like also like, like I'm sure like a bunch of tool makers out there are like listening and they're like, they know the feeling, but it's like also really special to build tools for people that are in the industry because it's like a different feeling, right? Like, cause you're like, Oh shit, this has got to be really nice. Cause the person that's getting this is knows how to make this probably better <laughs> <Right>. than I do. <laughs> so like, it's kind of also like a special feeling, like as simple as it is, it's like also kind of, it's like a little bit humbling and also a little bit inspiring to like know that people are doing cool work. And it's cool when I like watch people's Instagrams and I, I see it on the haws in the background, like, you know, cleaning off the Y axis, like, you know, and it's, it's cool. I mean, that makes me feel good. I mean, not I'm not getting rich off it, but it's definitely like, it, it's cool to see my, like those products out there. Yeah, definitely. It sounds very gratifying. Well, that brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First one up is, what did you research this week? doesn't have to be machining related, just what's been popping up in your browser. <laughs> How to be better at sewing. <laughs> so, so your gear doesn't fall apart in the middle of fucking forest. <laughs> so what gear are you sewing? Are you sewing like bags? Backpacks. Or? Okay. <laughs> Backpacks, bags, like all the like weird little stuff to like hold gear so basically like we were gonna go like about two weeks we're gonna be fully remote so leaving northern minnesota and boundary waters going north up into canada fully remote going up camping like and then cutting back down 
over near Duluth and dropping back in. So it's always like a little nerve wracking to know that like you're like putting all this work into these bags and you should just probably go buy them. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a fun project though oh, it's super it's super cool and like it's also cool because we're using like a lot of things that are like they're like also more we have a friend that raises sheep and they like had one like get hit or, or it's like a coyote or something but the the like actual like hide was still good so they tan the hide for us and so we use the our friend sheep like and we left the wool like full length so those are like our shoulder pads and like it's cool to like and we know the leather on it the leather band and so like it's cool to like see all the parts too that we're able to kind of piece together and you get to kind of build it custom and you know what fuck it if, even if it's not like the most perfect bag and someone's fucking gear snobbing us like at least i like you know at least i'm trying right? <laughs> Well, and it sounds like if you guys plan your trip the way you want, there's not going to be a gear snub within a hundred miles think of about you. That fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, great. I yeah, it's it's important to like also just keep trying stuff too. You know, it's like I don't know, maybe you hit something where you really like it, and that becomes your new thing, and you combine machining with sewing, or maybe you make sewing machines, or you know, and it's like it's cool to like. I think like it's so important to keep trying stuff, even if you're not good at it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think <laughs> that learning and and you know expanding your knowledge is so I don't know inherent to like the human condition. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I feel like I could just be like, why live anymore if I'm not going to keep learning? I will. I I was like, and then when I drive to work, I was listening to one of those like survival guides. <laughs> it's like there's nothing. This is like like fuck. I'm probably gonna make. I'll get made fun of. But like, I'm driving in my electric car in San Francisco, listening to a fucking survival guide on the radio, <laughs> right, on how to fucking make a fire in the fucking forest. <laughs> Like driving by the fucking headquarters of Google, right? Like, <laughs> like this is the irony of this is so yeah, bad. But that is you know, great. It, it was it was pretty funny. It was like it was it was good. And it was like I was listening to it was basically about like how to move fire. So it's actually a really difficult thing to move fire. And it's like how they kind of test people on their skills too. So the idea is basically you like, you know, you have to move it from campsite to campsite over like multiple days and keep it going. And so that was like so intrigued by how technical and how detailed it is to be able to do this. And I was like, damn, this is also how I start a forest fire. Yeah, I, I wouldn't <laughs> even know where to start. Like, what what do you construct to move fire? You basically just like kind of wrap it in moss and you keep it like as like ember, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And you're like, there's different ways of doing it, but like that was one of the examples is like, you know, to basically not smother it, but also keep it at this point where it keeps the heat and keeps going. So it was pretty wild. Like, you know, it's, it's interesting to listen to that kind of stuff. I mean, people have, people have some pretty amazing skills out there. They're definitely going to make it when, when shit gets crazy (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure well the other question i ask every guest is what are the things you are working on to be a better person leader employee what have you none of us are perfect and we're all working on stuff so what's yours yeah i mean i think it's always hard because it's there's i think it's like you know it's it's sometimes hard when you get in this like more manager role there's people have so much stuff going on and sometimes it's hard to like 
you know, it's, it's hard to like, remember that like people have these crazy lives. Like I, I sometimes get in these modes where I'm like, Oh fuck, we can do more. We let's do, let's go faster. Let's go. And I just have to remember sometimes. And so I've been really working on that, like to make sure that like my team is healthy and my team is stoked and like, they want to work on the projects I want to work on. And once we get into rhythm, like we move faster than anyone else, you know, but it takes like, sometimes I just have to like keep my damn mouth shut. (laughs) It's a hard thing to do, as you can tell by our six hour podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there one day. (laughs) Well, Jeff, thank you so much for the time again. I really appreciate you coming back on and updating us all on, you know, all the cool stuff you're doing. Astrana sounds like quite the, it sounds like such a perfect fit for you. Oh, it's a blast. I mean, it's like also like if there's anyone out there listening and they're, and they're, you know, really interested about the aerospace industry and like are, you know, excited about, about where things are going. I mean, definitely check out the website, watch some of the YouTube videos. We have a bunch of YouTube videos coming out. It's super cool. It's check out the job boards. We have a bunch of roles popping up here in like the next few months. We're looking for like a CMM quality person. We're looking for planners. We're looking for machinists. We're going to really ramp up. We just hired another aerospace welder. That's going to be super fun. So we're basically just really focused on kind of ramping in a sustainable way. But yeah, I mean, like check out the website if you're if you're looking for opportunities. Yeah, good to be part of a cool team on a cool project and just uh, always having fun. <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, if you give me the Astronus Jobs link or whatever, I'll throw it in the show notes as well. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. One more time, where can people find you online? Only fans? No. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta make money somehow. No. <laughs> Cuttingtime.com, like Instagram's the easy one. But yeah, like, you know, if you got questions, whatever, feel free to reach out. I'm usually pretty good about getting back to people. They got questions about like how how to do things or whatever. I always am intrigued what everyone else is working on. So it's super fun. So Instagram, LinkedIn, CuttingTime.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to all the Patreon members who make the show possible. Thank you all for listening. And I will be back next week.